Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, hello there. Here we go again. Welcome to the program. Um, well, we're in full swing here with the school year now. It's October. There's uh, no doubt about it. Um, you're in deep now, and a whole bunch of months ahead of you to, um, well... You know, we could have this be a productive next eight months with the challenging kids who are in our schools. We could finally at long last figure out what their lagging skills are so we have the right lenses on. We could figure out what their unsolved problems are, figure out which ones we're going to work on first, have our agenda for the year laid out there for us, um, we could start solving problems and, well, collaboratively, of course, and indirectly teaching these kids the skills they're lacking. And then by June, have a bunch of problems solved. And if we do that collaboratively, have a bunch of skills taught. Or we could spend the next eight months um having zero tolerance and um, pulling every punishment we know of out of the hat and talking ourselves till we're blue in the face but not solving any problems. And we'd have no hope whatsoever that next school year would be any different. And by the way, neither would the kid. Those are really two distinct visions for what a school year could look like in our work with challenging kids. And, you know, if you're in a building with a lot of challenging kids, it's going to be one kid and one problem at a time, and you're going to start chipping away at it, and you're still going to have a lot to show for it in June. Probably not going to be where you wanted to be in June, but doing the right thing gets you closer to where you wanted to be faster than doing the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, stepping backwards. Those are two very different visions, though, for what, who challenging kids are, what they need from us, um, how to help them. Very different visions. Uh, all right, I'm going to help you on this program. Pursue the collaborative problem-solving vision. Pursue the lives in the balance vision. But as always, these are your 45 minutes. 
uh, if you're working with a student who's not responding very well to Plan B, if you're running into trouble using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, if you're having difficulty getting your colleagues at school to buy in, here's your chance to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need, or just listen to what's going on with others who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. If you do want to call in, uh, once again, that call-in number is 646-727-2691. That's 646-727-2691. If you're not the calling in type, you can always send a question electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website. That's www.livesinthebalance.org. Um, I don't really have a theme for the day, although I'm going to be answering some email that I received. I'm still getting through all the email that piled up over the summer. Um, we'll turn to that in a little bit. Um, been having some really interesting stuff going on on the parent program. That airs every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. Um, We've had a mom who uh, called in on the first program back from the summer and had a was talking about how it was hard for to get her help her son engage in Plan B, and we talked that through, and uh, she did her homework, and um, well, he talked a little bit. I can't wait to find out what happened between last week and this week. Um, not quite as hot on the phone line here in our parent uh, in our uh, educator program. Um, but uh, that's all right. We got lots of e email to get through. Um, by the way, um, starting tomorrow on the parents program is the parents panel. Going to be getting together once a month. Uh, two, three, four parents who've had some experience in working with challenging kids who are going to be um, getting together to. Uh, talk about uh, their experiences. Um, I know some of these players, some of them are going to make you laugh. Some of them might make you cry, but all of them, people with big hearts who just wanted to help their challenging kids um, and sometimes found that difficult to do with schools. Oh, you're, if you're feeling neglected, don't worry. The educators panel starts next month just pulling a few people together um, to do an educators panel as well and uh, the educators will get together once a month too cool eh um, all right let's let's go to the email a little bit um, here's one um, I have a seven-year-old son says the writer does that sound like it should be the parents program hang in there uh, I agree with the Plan B approach, and the folks at school are trying to use it. However, I'm confused about one point. I understand it will take time for these staff to get proficient and will make mistakes. What happens when they make mistakes and my son reacts in a negative manner? Are consequences still given? The million-dollar question. The psychologist said it was left to district policy. Well, now there's... Policies tend not to be highly individualized. Policies don't have us thinking, what does this kid need? 
what's the right thing for us to do for this kid? Mm. You know, policies are sort of like legislation. Um, they sometimes just give you a very, very broad outline, but they don't work for a whole bunch of kids. Uh, the psychologist said it was left to district policy. I said it leaves my son with the short end of the stick. The adults are able to make mistakes. I don't, I'm not okay with some of the behavior my son has displayed at school. However, a lot of it has been a reaction to something an untrained adult did. My son is a happy child. He does not just act out. I want him to be treated fairly during this training process, and how do you do that? Wow. Uh, I want him to be treated fairly, too. So here's a bunch of stuff. You know, uh, as I've always said, it takes two to tango. Challenging episodes don't happen in a vacuum. They happen when the demands being placed upon a student outstrip that student's skills to respond adaptively to those demands. That description of when challenging behavior occurs tells you that it takes two to tango. So as I've always wondered, often out loud, if it takes two to tango, how come the kid's the one getting suspended? If it takes two to tango, how come the kid's the one getting the imposed consequence? If it takes two to tango, how come the kid's the one with the diagnosis? takes two to tango. Almost like we're saying to the kid, and I might have said this in one of the previous weeks, we're saying to the kid, we know you're lacking skills. Actually, in some places, they don't know that yet. But let's say they're in a place, kid's in a place where we know he's lacking skills. We've used the ALSIP to figure out what his lagging skills and unsolved problems are. So we, But then, if that's as far as it goes, then and we continue doing what we've always done to try to get the kid to exhibit adaptive behavior, then here's what we're basically saying to the kid. In so many words, kid, um, we know you're lacking skills, but what we think we'll do is we'll remind you to exhibit those skills. And then when that doesn't work, because it couldn't possibly work, reminding a kid to exhibit skills he hasn't got doesn't work, uh, we're going to insist that you exhibit skills you haven't got, which, of course, won't work either. Then we're going to... Well, since that's not working, we're going to reprimand you for not exhibiting skills that you do not yet possess. And when that doesn't work, we're going to lower the boom and impose consequences so that you'll exhibit skills you haven't got. Well, now that just makes no sense whatsoever. So my answer to the question, are consequences still given while the adults are on the learning curve on plan B, is, uh, geez, not if you can avoid it. You know, um, Not if you can avoid it. I mean, I'm, I'm never big on yanking the rug out from under the adults so that they don't have anything to do while they are on their plan B learning curve. But... Um, we certainly don't want to do anything that's going to make things worse. And if you rewind the tape on the vast majority of challenging episodes and challenging kids, what you're going to find is adults imposing their will. That's plan A. And then when uh, the kid gets upset, adults consequencing the kid for getting upset 
over the plan A that the adult imposed and that we pretty much could have guaranteed was going to get the kid upset. You know, when you look at it that way, um, well, the whole thing just doesn't make any make any sense. So bottom line is there are some things consequences do well. Um, they give kids the motivation to do well, but I'm telling you the kid's motivated already. The whole theme of collaborative problem solving is kids do well if they can. So the kid is motivated already. He doesn't need more motivation from us. He needs us to figure out what skills he's lacking. So we got the right lenses on. He needs us to figure out what unsolved problems are reliably and predictably setting in motion his challenging episodes. And he needs us to start solving those problems collaboratively. But it's always tricky. At what point do adults stop doing what they've always done and start doing Plan B um, as, as soon as possible? But you don't want to make things worse by imposing consequences. Now, this, this is always an interesting point, too. A lot of people get the collaborative problem-solving approach wrong. They think that um, uh, me bad-mouthing imposed consequences means I'm bad-mouthing all kinds of consequences. Um, I'm not bad-mouthing natural consequences. Natural consequences occur naturally. Uh, can't be against natural consequences. They're inevitable. They're inescapable. No, it's the imposed variety that uh, that I have a problem with because natural consequences are very powerful and very persuasive. And kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges have, have suffered more natural consequences than most of us will experience in a lifetime. What's the natural consequence of having uh, social difficulties? Having no friends. That's not an imposed consequence. That's what happens naturally, and it's very powerful, and it's very persuasive. And it pretty much lets you know, you know what? This kid would like nothing better than to have friends. This kid is already highly motivated to exhibit appropriate social skills. So, you know, let's put two and two together here. If the kid's highly motivated to exhibit appropriate social skills, then it's safe to assume he doesn't need motivation from you. He needs something else. And you know what that something else is. Fill out that ALSIP. Lagging skills, unsolved problems, get to work. I'm got an email from one of our listeners saying, I remember the analogy. If this was a reading disability, we'd provide reading help. Same thing for trouble with math. We wouldn't impose consequences on a kid for having lagging skills in reading or math. No. We'd figure out what was getting in their way. Thank you, uh, listener. Uh, we'd figure out what was getting in their way, and we'd uh, get the right lenses on, and we'd figure out what problems were making it hard for them to move forward the way we wanted them to in math, and then we'd get to work solving problems. 
big downside to consequences. Some of challenging kids' worst moments occur right after an adult tried to get the kid to exhibit skills he didn't have by imposing consequences. So to this mom, uh, I hope it's going well since you wrote this email. It was about a month ago, longer. Um, I hope that the folks at school are up to speed as quickly as possible uh, figuring out what lagging skills your son has so they got the right lenses on, what unsolved problems they could be solving collaboratively with him. And I hope that since you wrote that email, uh, numerous unsolved problems have been solved and your son is doing well at the tender age of seven. Another parent, actually, is a grandma. Here's the email. My six-year-old grandson is having issues at school. When working in class, he often gets frustrated if he needs help and the teacher isn't able to help him right away. Well, there's, you know, here's the interesting thing. All you got to do is read these and you hear about unsolved problems that kind of leap at you from the page. He has had explosive outbursts where he throws chairs and runs from the room. Those of you who uh, have heard me speak lately know that, I'm re- that I would refer to that as a little what throws chairs and runs from the rooms. Now, some people would say, that doesn't sound so little. Well, it's not so little, but it's what the kid is doing when he's upset, which is the least important part. Lagging skills and unsolved problems are the most important part. I'll continue with the email. Uh, This is new behavior. My grandson didn't display these behaviors in kindergarten. His teacher has read lost at school and is so willing to work with us. Now, isn't that music to our ears? But he was recently suspended for one and a half days for running from the principal. Okay, he's a runner. Runners run. Actually, we just heard he runs from the room, too. He's a runner. He's a thrower, too. He so needs ideas to help him to understand that running away is not okay. Uh, Grandma, I think he understands that running is not okay. I think that when he's dealing with an unsolved problem and he doesn't know how to solve it and he gets heated up, um, he can't think anything else to do except get out of Dodge. He's a runner. Runners get out of Dodge. Truth is, running in some ways, not all, is more adaptive than hitting or kicking or attacking. Running can be dangerous because you don't want him ended up in the street or in a unsafe spot, but in some ways, running, well, it's not quite so far the spectrum of looking bad as some other things he could be doing. I feel like, it's back to the email, I feel like he is constantly being punished. Punished at school, then punished at home. His parents take toys and such from him and allow him to earn them back. His parents and I are so frustrated we need help before he's labeled as a bad child and grows to dislike school. Well, he's six. The kid before that was seven. What, um, you know, this is frustrating all the way around. Seeing things not get better is frustrating all the way around. Uh, having punishment be the default intervention is frustrating all the way around. There's only a finite number of things that punishment fixes. Punishment 
once again, I'll give a kid extrinsic motivation, but that assumes he wasn't motivated in the first place. We've already put that one to rest today. Punishment can be an effective teaching tool, but I'm sitting here saying I think that this kid, and this is every challenging kid I've worked with practically, who knew that their challenging behavior was not something they ought to be doing. This is not an issue of lacking knowledge. These kids have the knowledge. They know right from wrong. This is why I'm not a huge fan of spending lots of time in our schools teaching kids the basic lessons about right from wrong. They all know them. The challenging kids know the basic lessons about right from wrong, and the not-so-challenging kids know the basic lessons about right from wrong. They all know the basic lessons about right from wrong. They all know what our expectations are. I don't recommend that people spend a lot of time reviewing the expectations. Not not a terrible idea to, to do once or twice, but not not something to get too caught up in. So you know the answer to this. If challenging kids know right from wrong and the not-so-challenging kids know right from wrong, then how come the not-so-challenging kids are doing right and not wrong and the challenging ones are doing wrong along with right? What have the not-so-challenging ones got that the challenging ones don't got? Pardon my French. Skills. They all know right from wrong. They all know our expectations. It's just that some have the skills to pull it off and some don't. Some have the skills to perform what they know and some don't. Punishment doesn't fix any of that because they already know. This is why it's so puzzling that punishment is the default intervention. It's so narrow in terms of what it accomplishes. And it's got a big downside. And for those of you who think of yourselves as not punishment people but reward people, um, they're cut from the exact same bolt of cloth. And in the same way that punishment can set in motion a challenging episode with great reliability, so does a kid failing to achieve an anticipated positive reward. All right, today seems to be Young Kid Day. Here's another email. Uh, I've been working in a child care facility with a four-year-old child who fits perfectly in the descriptions you give in your book. He currently has two to three explosions a week at school and about four to five close calls a day. (laughs) Um, Why am I laughing? Because I'm always telling people when they're trying to figure out what a kid's unsolved problems are, um, it's not only the ones where he actually does blow. It's the ones that cause close calls as well. Truth is, you're going to learn a lot about uh, Your best way of identifying unsolved problems is not um, to only pay attention to the ones that caused explosions, but to pay attention to the ones that almost caused them too. Any disagreement any conflict um, worthy of our attention. Uh, Back to the email. Uh, 
He has difficulty defining his emotions, explaining his concern, and coming up with solutions, both because he's only four and because he has difficulty expressing himself. Doing proactive plan B is difficult because he can't generate solutions or remember them later. His explosions usually result from boredom. All right, now there's a specific, actually it's an unsolved problem, but not a very specific one. He has a hard time choosing an activity. There's an unsolved problem, but we'd want to be even more specific than that. And gets frustrated when he can't complete a task perfectly. Now there's an unsolved problem, and on that one, our emailer was specific. Cutting on lines, making a piece of paper stay folded. Do you have suggestions for an adapted plan B for younger children? He's on his ninth, oh my, he's on his ninth type of medication in a year. We have just started using collaborative problem solving, and we hope we can help him verbalize his frustrations before he starts school next year. Nine medications. Um, it's a lot of medication, especially when I'm hearing about some very specific unsolved problems that could be solved. Medication doesn't solve problems. Sometimes medication sets the stage for a kid to be able to participate in the collaborative solving of problems, but medication doesn't solve them. Nine meds, four years old. What is going on? Let's go back to the middle of the email because that's the stuff that I wanted to talk about. Doing a proactive plan B is difficult because he can't generate solutions or remember them later. Well, here's the good news. Uh, generating solutions is not only up to him. Um, it's, uh, well, y'all are a problem-solving team. Y'all are problem-solving partners. He's your problem-solving buddy, which means that he's not the only one who is on the hook for coming up with potential solutions. The helpers, the adult helpers, are on the hook as well. One of the things that sometimes goes wrong in Plan B, and I don't know if that's true in this case or not because I don't have the details that I need, but sometimes adults come to the misconception that it's the kid's job to think of the solutions. It is not the kid's job to think of the solutions. It's y'all's job to think of the solutions. So you can, if a kid is having trouble generating solutions, the adult caregiver can help out and kick in with some themselves. Uh, he has difficulty defining his emotions, expressing his concern, and coming up with solutions, both because he is only four and because he has difficulty expressing himself. Okay, well, I uh, don't know if the fact that he's four is that meaningful. I um. I've worked with many four-year-olds whose communication skills were intact, who were able to participate in Plan B just fine. So I think it has more to do with the communication skills, which we're hearing a little bit about, um, difficulty expressing himself, difficulty defining his emotions. Quite frankly, I don't know if he has to define his emotions to participate in problem-solving, so I'm not sure that one is so crucial. But um, if we adults play, pay close attention to the specific conditions in which a kid is becoming 
challenging, and this emailer has given us some examples. Um, uh, boredom, we would want more details on that. Choosing an activity, we would want more details on that. Difficulty completing a task perfectly, cutting on lines, making a piece of paper stay folded. Boy, we got at least four, some of them pretty specific, unsolved problems right there. That organizes the effort. That helps adults feel less overwhelmed because now we know what problems need to be solved to dramatically reduce a kid's challenging behavior, and it helps the kid know what we're working on. As I've always said, one of the big reasons the unsolved problems of kids remain unsolved, the unsolved problems of challenging kids in particular, is because we weren't specific enough about what problems we were trying to solve in the first place. And so it was a rather nebulous approach to problem solving in which, in many cases, we weren't working on anything at all. Too vague. So we have some very specific unsolved problems here. Um, but if we didn't, then it's possible to train a kid uh, a very basic vocabulary to help him uh, articulate his concerns. We could, if we weren't really ambitious, and if his communication skills were that impaired, even if they weren't that impaired, we could do up some pictures to show what unsolved problems are frequently getting in his way. Could, you know, uh, the sky's the limit on creativity here. Uh, one of the things I'm often asking is, how is the kid communicating now? However he's communicating now might provide us with a mechanism for him to communicate about two things in particular, unsolved problems and his concerns about them and solutions to them. But if a kid has no communication skills at all, well, there's no such thing. Kids are always communicating something. They're just not always communicating those somethings in ways that are preferable to us adults. We adults prefer words. Not every kid has words. You can do collaborative problem solving even if a kid doesn't have words. Just got to find a way for him to communicate about two things in particular, his concerns about specific unsolved problems and solutions to those unsolved problems. This email suggests that <clears throat> the plan B that's being done is of the proactive variety. That's a good thing in many kids, though, Kids who look like they're having trouble communicating in emergency plan B don't have that much trouble communicating in proactive plan B because the heat's off and we got time. Hmm. So the age doesn't deter me from thinking that this kid can participate in plan B. He might need some help generating solutions. That's something we can model for him. He might need help articulating his concerns. That's something we can train. Cool. Thanks for emailing. Um, lots of unsolved problems to work on there. Now you know it's not the close calls that matter. It's just anything that gets him agitated Anything that's a disagreement? All right, here's a rather touching uh, email. About no, well, yeah, I guess it is a uh, 
about a particular kid, but not that specifically. Um, the emailer is writing, we have many teens who need the Plan B approach, but are ending up incarcerated and eventually fall deeper into the system. I know. That's why lives in the balance exist, by the way. Um, we need to do something about that. We need a group, an organization that adv advocates for challenging kids, behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, parents, teachers, staff. Welcome to Lives in the Balance, the sponsor of this web-based radio program. I'll keep with going with the email here. It'd be nice if there were places where we could place these youth rather than in an inflexible system that won't help. I have one youth right now who is ADHD, ODD, and has a processing disorder. Um, well, you know what I'm going to say about that. I still don't know anything about his lagging skills or unsolved problems, although we have some hints. And I know that incarceration will only make matters worse, yet his explosive behavior gets him arrested frequently. Any suggestions? You know, um, emailer, if you're the person who could finally at long last, if you're in a position to have to facilitate a discussion using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, if you're in a position to facilitate that, and get the people who are responsible for helping this lad, um, viewing him through the right lenses. And if you're the person who's in a position to have them identify his unsolved problems and then learn how to solve those problems with him collaboratively, all of a sudden I would become much more optimistic about how he's going to do. So there's one suggestion, but I don't know if you're in a position to... Um, To facilitate that, it just takes one person to be that squeaky wheel for a challenging kid and gets the ball rolling um, on helping people. Get the right lenses on and start doing something differently than what has been done to this kid all along. You know, challenging kids are the most over-punished, over-corrected, over-directed kids there are. It's not that they haven't been punished. It's not that they haven't been corrected. It's not that they haven't been directed. They've had that stuff happen in ample supply. The problem is those interventions don't fix what's broke. One of the things that's broke is the lenses that adults are viewing these kids through. These kids are frequently treated in ways that are just unconscionable by adults with the best of intentions who simply have on the wrong lenses because they haven't heard of collaborative problem solving. So if you're the person who can facilitate helping people sit down and discuss for 40 to 50 minutes, 20 minutes the kid's lagging skills, 20 minutes the kid's unsolved problems, you will have done him the favor of a lifetime. Any other suggestions? Go to the Lives in the Balance website, 
go to the home page. There's a flag at the bottom left-hand corner of the home page where you can sign up for the Lives in the Balance email newsletter and get help advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers. There's another suggestion for you. But in every system, it takes somebody to get the ball rolling. In any school, inpatient unit, residential facility, prison, household, we're looking for one person to get the ball rolling, one person to bring people together, look at the data, look at what is being done right now, take a good, honest look at whether it's working, start the hard discussions of what can be done to make things better. Here's the good news. Discussions about what, how to make things better shouldn't cause people to break out in hives in any facility, in any household. You're always looking to make things better, but sometimes making things better when it comes to looking through honest lenses at what we're doing now. You know, um, old habits die hard. Culture changes are not easy to achieve. So people can be particularly defensive when they have their uh, style of discipline questioned. Some of that's just habit, and some of it's um, scared. No one wants to be unsafe. Of course, the longer you stick with what's not working, the more unsafe you feel. Um, boy, you could rewind the tape on a lot of very unsafe episodes, and what you'll find is an adult using Plan A, often with an adult-imposed consequence attached. That's why in the settings where collaborative problem-solving has been implemented, people became more safe not less, but it's scary in the beginning because we've been doing things a certain way and we think that certain things work with our own kids and they should work just as well with kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. And there, right there, is the mistake we make. Thinking that what worked for a kid who isn't lacking the skills of flexibility, adaptability, frustration, tolerance, and problem-solving is going to work with one who is lacking those skills. There's the big mistake. The mistake is in thinking that, well, personally, I think that one mistake is in thinking that rewarding and punishing worked for the not-so-challenging ones. I'm not so sure that it worked. I'm pretty sure they're just have the ones who have the skills to survive it. But it sure isn't working for the kids who are getting it the most the ones in our schools and our other facilities with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. So this emailer is a bit, um, well, dismayed by what she sees going on out there, and I'm dismayed by it too. And Lives in the Balance is 
exists to help people feel like there's actually something they can do about it. So, if you can't be the person who in your facility gets the conversation going, first of all, there's a lot of people out there who've already done that, and um, things are moving in the right direction in their facility now as a result of their efforts. But if you can't be that person, if you're not in a position to do that, sign up for the Lives in the Balance uh, newsletter on the home page next to the flag. Just click on it. It will have you enter your email address, and um, you'll get information from us about how to advocate on behalf of challenging kids and their caregivers in your community. And we're going to get the job done. Well, that is um, all the emails that I have for today. But we sure have covered wide-ranging topics. Um, hope the program has been helpful to you today. And, um, oh, I need to mention, there is no program next week. It's Columbus Day. And um, most folks are out of school and so there is no uh, blog talk radio collaborative problem solving for educators next Monday, October 11th. Um, nor is there, yikes, nor is the program airing on October 18th. You know, I didn't realize we were taking two weeks off, but um, I'm not booking talks for myself anymore on Mondays, but this is one that was booked quite some time ago, and uh, actually I'm glad I'm going to be going there. It's an ADHD conference at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, and I get to hang out with some old friends there and talk about how collaborative problem solving is very applicable to kids who carry that diagnosis. So we, unfortunately, this early in the school year have to take two weeks off from the uh, radio program for parents, but there aren't many other Mondays that we won't be on. And just as a reminder, starting in November, our educators panel, but also a reminder, starting tomorrow, October 5th, our parents panel begins hanging out together first Tuesday of every month uh, on the web-based radio program for parents, Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. Okay, I think that's going to do it for us today. Um, going to be a little bit while before we uh, talk to each other again, but um, we'll survive. And um, in the meantime, good luck with what you're doing at your school to get collaborative problem solving rolling. Talk to you in about three weeks.